0: To episode 171 of real life ghost stories to kick things off this week i would like to thank some of our newest patreon subscribers i would like to thank amy colvin gray castle podcast sam gardner ria williams laurie ann slonecker charlotte tara sam maximus rebecca o'sullivan jennifer berger sickleweed robin mary richardson Jamie Butler, David Alvarez, Sheila Temple, Christina Farrington, Ryan Carter, and Jen Gizowinch. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review, I'm very sorry to report, isn't actually a horror film. Okay, but I'll explain to you why I chose to do it in a second. Our film review is Three thousand years of logging. Three thousand years of longing was released in 2022. It is 5.9 out of 10 on IMDb and 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. Doctor Alethea Binney, played by Tilda Swinton, is an academic content with life and a creature of reason. While in Istanbul attending a conference, she happens to encounter a jinn played by Idris Elba, who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. This presents two problems. First, she doubts that he is real, and second, because she is a scholar of story and mythology, she knows all the cautionary tales of wishes gone wrong. The jinn pleads his case by telling her fantastical stories of his past. Eventually she is beguiled and makes a wish that surprises them both. So the reason why I chose to do this film, even though it isn't necessarily a horror film, is because it centres around jinn, And jinn are creatures that we did an episode on quite a long time ago now, maybe a year ago. But I thought, okay, It's not very often a film about Jin comes around into the mainstream and I'd quite like to review it. It was very magical. There were some actually quite scary bits in it. Like there was one bit with this horrible creature (laughs) who was posing as a guard and then it started talking in this really scary voice. So there were bits of horror in it is what I'm trying to say. But while it's not necessarily a horror film, it was at points, a little bit scary. So you're just going to have to indulge me on this one, that that this is the film review this week. So I think it's out in cinemas at the moment. I think it's still out in cinemas by the time this comes out. So let's go through my likes and dislikes. So likes first. It was magical. I don't know what I was expecting. I didn't really know that much about the film. I just saw that it was 3,000 years of longing and it had... Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton both of whom I love as actors so I thought okay yeah I'm gonna go see it. I did go to the counter I went to see this with Sinead and Nick from The Poisoner's Cabinet I went to the counter and said can I please have a ticket for 3,000 years under the sea which is not the film that that I was going to see however if it was told from Idris Elba's perspective he does spend a long time under the sea in this movie so like I said it was completely magical. It's just really, this whole film is an ode to storytelling and it is just a love song to fairy tales. Magical, magical stories and fairy tales with two really brilliant actors and it's all about the joy and the wonder of storytelling and how storytelling can can make people believe you it can make people see the world from a different perspective it can make people fall in love and storytelling is really important I saw somewhere in a review that it was described as Aladdin for adults and I feel like it kind of is Aladdin for adults it is visually stunning and a part of the reason I kind of wanted to do a review on it is that I think it needs to be seen on the big screen like I think it needs to be seen in the cinema because the visuals really lend themselves to a big screen kind of sound like Harry Styles in his uh, promo for um what you call it don't worry darling when I'm saying that and it dives into the legend and the lore of the djinn which is really nice to see and lots of the different kind of rules that gin have and I I actually spent the whole film thinking about what my three wishes would be if I met a genie so if I, you know, opened a bottle at some point and a genie came out, hopefully I would get Idris Elba as well. That would make me really happy. If Idris Elba came out of a bottle and was like, hey, uh, you've got three wishes. It's a really nice thing to think about. So uh, me and Sinead and Nick had this conversation afterwards. It's a really nice conversation. So the rules are in the movie that you can't ask for immortality. You can't ask for endless wishes and you can't end suffering so what would your three wishes be just have a think about let me know if you want what your three wishes would be and I just think it was quite like there was sort of a childlike wonder to the film and it did feel like a fairy tale for adults and there were elements of it that were all about uh, just human desire and what happens when we fall in love and what happens with lust And how these things can lead people's downfall and elements of control in relationships. And I just, yeah, and what would you wish for? What would you wish for if you got three wishes from a genie? Like, what would happen? And I kind of had to think long and hard about my dislikes. Because I sort of got, like, whipped up in the childish wonder of it all. But I guess I feel like if you're going to title a film 3,000 Years of Longing, then you better have some serious longing in there. But I just didn't feel like there was any longing or lust or sexual tension or chemistry between Tilda Swinton's character and Idris Elba's character. I just didn't really, didn't really get it. There wasn't that much chemistry between them. And I understand that Tilda Swinton's character was sort of a very logical, kind of a a woman who likes to spend time on her own. She likes being solitary. Her brain works in a very academic way. And that is referenced throughout the film. So, I don't know, but I just felt like there wasn't that much oomph between them as two characters. And the djinn tells this story at one point about his love affair with the Queen of Sheba. And it is, like, sexy and sensual. And it is, like, whew! I mean, there's stuff going on there. But then, the rest of the film, there isn't very much longing in it, considering it's, you know, a film that's all about longing. And I know that part of that longing, it isn't just sexual, and is isn't just about relationships. It's, it's about... Idris Elba's character the djinn looking for his freedom and longing for his freedom and the kind of this whole idea of human desire like what is it that you are longing is it a sexual longing is it a longing in a relationship is it the longing for knowledge like everybody's longing is different and there was this sort of there was a moment in the film which I thought felt really out of place and there was this really bizarre and cheap fat phobic joke I just didn't really seem very funny and they somehow made it like vitally important to the narrative and it literally I literally was watching it I could see where the joke was going and I sort of when it happened I turned Sinead and just rolled my eyes because I thought Re- uh, really really are we doing this like everything else in the movie is so beautiful and magical and and this is where you try and get some humor out of it kind of made, it was a strange choice and I wondered why they decided to do it the other thing that really I found very strange and maybe a little bit off-putting was that there is a serious amount of really clean cut CGI in this movie like a lot of CGI and it's that kind of like CGI that's so perfect it almost starts looking uncanny valley so that I found that a bit off-putting throughout it and I didn't right I have to say I loved the storytelling so all the stories the djinn told of his past you know meeting the queen of Sheba um having a big love affair with her, being around in the in the reign of Suleiman, like all of those stories I loved, and then he meets this other woman who is like a genius and, and wants loads of knowledge. So those stories are beautiful, but then I didn't really get the end of it. So there was there was a whole sequence of kind of the the gin in the present that I didn't really I kind of didn't really get what was happening. But I also recognised that it could possibly be because I was spent loads of time just thinking about what my three wishes would be. So I feel like this film is going to be a really Marmite film. I think people are either going to love it or hate it. Now I kind of initially loved it and then when I thought about it a little bit more I wasn't as enamoured with it as I thought I was. So I think I'm going to give it three and a half stars. I don't think it deserves four stars but I just think for like an adult fairy tale, magical storytelling, that it is a three and a half star film it's something that's unlike anything I've seen for a really long time I love the two actors I love the characters they're portrayed individually so yeah I think three and a half stars for three thousand years of longing Which brings us to our story this week and our story is not about longing or lack thereof nor it is about genies in bottles but it is a very exciting story and it is one that has been on my list for a long time so let's get into it. Lore and legend is vitally important in our understanding of a people, of their culture and the importance of storytelling. We've travelled all over the world in our exploration of creatures and monsters, and their importance in moral tales and in keeping children out of the woods. We've explored the sleep demons of Laos, the Banshee of Ireland, the toilet demons of Japan, and the one-legged, blood-sucking imps of Thailand. These stories often depict what happens to human beings when they succumb to lust and greed, or What happens to humans when they take the lives of another? Or they are stories that are designed to keep us safe, to keep children out of the woods or out of the water. Monsters that are designed to protect us from very real danger. Today's story takes us halfway across the world to a tale of one of these monsters who seems to have very real world implications. Especially for those unfortunate few who live in its hunting ground. Our story takes us back to the 1800s in the rural badlands of Venezuela and Colombia. The badlands were rural and unoccupied, save for scatterings of people and the hint of uncontrolled urban sprawl on the horizon. Sometimes people would be drawn to the wilds of the Badlands. Sometimes it was a romanticised ideal of life in the wilderness. Sometimes people were hiding from life or hiding from consequences. And sometimes it was a necessity. Hunting, searching, looking. Locals knew the dangers of the Badlands and every time they ventured out there they kept one eye open and listened carefully in case they would hear him and if they did they knew it was time to run some years before there had been a man who was wildly in love with his wife she was beautiful and full of life and together they celebrated their love and passion intensely he worked hard in the days and in the evenings they ate and drank and danced and sang He would marvel at her as her hair flew while she danced with wild abandon, the glint of pure joy in her eyes. But he was not the only one who was watching his wife intently, and he was not the only one who desired her. The man's father had set his sights on his own son's wife, and overcome with the need to possess her, he waited until his son was gone to brutally attack her. The son returned home, and the joy had been extinguished from his wife's eyes. Seeing this, the son flew into a wild rage and murdered his father, torturing him to cause as much pain and suffering as he possibly could. He ripped his father apart, disemboweling him and standing there watching him die slowly. Suddenly calm, while watching his revenge play out before him, The son had not considered that there would be consequences for his actions. And when he was discovered by his grandfather, bloody and calm, standing over the innards of his dead father, the villagers decided that punishment was necessary and it needed to be swift and brutal. The son was captured by the people and tied to a post in the middle of the village where he was viciously lashed. The son remained quiet resigned to his fate broken by the pain in his wife's eyes the punishment continued and chili peppers were rubbed into his open wounds before he was released to stagger off into the badlands carrying the remains of his own father his grandfather and the villagers watched him stagger off into the distance the men holding back a pack of snarling starving dogs and then they heard a sound. From far off in the distance, the sun whistled. A strange, mournful sound that was interspersed with the snapping and snarling of the hounds. It was like he had not only accepted his fate, but the whistling sound goading the dogs that he knew would be released at any second. His grandfather gave the signal and the men let go of the ropes. The dogs launched forward, teeth bared and foaming at the mouth. As they advanced on the sun, the grandfather shouted into the void that had grown between them. "'You should not have done that to your father. You will be damned for all of eternity!' The last sound that anybody heard was the slow and steady whistling, cut short. But that's one version of events, and as with every good legend, there is more than one story. Another version of events was that there was once a spoiled young man who demanded and demanded and demanded. His every whim was catered for, and if it were not, there would be hell to pay. One day the son decided that the only thing that would satiate him was a deer heart and he sent his father out to hunt down a deer to get it for him. His father returned empty-handed and the son flew into a wild rage and killed the father. The son then presented his mother with his father's heart to cook and as with the previous iteration of the story he was whipped, tortured released with his father's remains and chased down by savage dogs cursed to wander the earth for all eternity the legend of el silbon was born locals of the badlands would tell stories of encountering a terrifying creature in the wilderness this creature was huge seven foot tall or even bigger it was thin unnaturally thin and tall with long slender limbs it roamed the countryside in a tattered white suit a wide-brimmed hat with its head bowed a sack over its shoulder carrying the remains of its father tattered shoes and a dog nipping at its heels locals said that the whistle of el silbon was heard before it was ever seen and if you heard the whistle at a distance it was too late he was already right on top of you. Unlike many stories of folklore and legend, the story of El Silbon is crystal clear on the sound of the whistle. It apparently always resembles the sound of an ascending scale. The distance of the sound varies to confuse its victims. El Silbon is said to prowl the roads, woods and meadows and always comes when it's raining. Sometimes he can be glimpsed, crouching in the treetops, waiting for drunks and womanisers to stumble into his path. If El Silbon runs into a drunk, it is said he will suck the blood and alcohol from them, wizening them and killing them. To womanisers... He tears them limb from limb and adds their bones to the sack on his back, along with his father and other victims. The whistle has the power to lull people into a stupor, but it can also send them insane with fear. It is also said that El Silbon will enter houses to count how many bones he has. And if you are to hear the clattering of these bones upon the floor, then someone in the family is about to die. One moonlit night in Venezuela, a rancher was hosting a party. Raphael was late, as always, and his friends had warned him against walking through the wilderness alone. But Raphael was dismissive. Come on, what was the worst that could happen? He was going on horseback and could outpace any man or beast that could do harm, although this in itself was highly unlikely. As he made his way across the stream, his horse suddenly stopped and pricked its ears. And then he heard it. A slow whistling somewhere in the distance. The horse reared and Raphael was thrown off into the stream below. Coughing and spluttering and cursing his horse, Raphael stood up, trying to straighten himself out. When he looked up, he realised that there was someone standing right in front of him a pair of long and painfully thin legs. He looked up in time to see a long, thin arm wielding a stick as it rained blows down upon him. Raphael came to, still in the stream, pain shooting through his body with his horse whinnying softly next to him. He managed to get to his feet and onto the horse with great difficulty and made his way to the party. When he arrived, the party goers were shocked at his appearance. They helped him off the horse and into the house where his injuries were tended to. He told them the story of what happened, the sound of the whistling and the impossibly tall, thin creature who beat him half to death in the stream. The party-goers looked from one to the other. El Silbon. But Raphael was lucky to survive. Most who encountered the whistler did not. And while these stories sound like pure fantasy, there are those who believe that El Silbon is very, very real. The Venezuelan writer and poet, Damaso Delgado, claimed to have encountered El Silbon in 1966 and very nearly lost his life. He only managed to escape because the dog that was with him began to bark and El Silbon melted away into the night. And those who have encountered him and survived spoke about the ways in which El Silbon can be stopped. By carrying chilies, a whip, or barking dogs are said to deter him. El Silbon may seem like a million miles away from reality, even within the context of the paranormal. But there is an element of the El Silbon story that we are all very familiar with. And that is, of course, the whistling. All the way back in episode 39, we talked about the whistler, a story of a man who throughout his life had heard the same two-tone whistle and eventually filmed a man in a boat making the same two-tone whistle. It was disturbing and many people debunked the story as being the sound of a particular bird, something which I have my reservations about. Interestingly, the story prompted lots of other people to share their experiences with something similar, whether it was a bird, a beast or an entity. Many people referenced El Silbon as something that might be the cause of the whistling. People shared stories about their parents and grandparents who told them all about the legend of El Silbon, many of whom claimed to have encountered him or at least know somebody who had encountered the entity. In my searching for stories similar to El Silbón or stories about whistling, I came across a story written by Hayden Brown for the website NorfolkTalesAndMyths.com. And it is another story about a whistling entity. And while we may not be in Venezuela, and the whistling sound may not be coming from El Silbón, there is a shared experience here, so let's get into it. There is an old, and some have thought, Strange tale relating to the shingled beach at Weybourne. It is that it is haunted. This haunting, if that is what it is, takes the form of a persistent whistling sound, which is heard out on the foreshore just as dusk is descending, particularly on nights when the moon is full. The whistle is not random or casual but sounds more like the sort of signal given by a person who is trying to attract someone's attention. You may well think that this form of distress call is quite normal from anyone seeking help but you would be of a different mind if anyone ever suggested that no earthly lips were making this sound but many have said in the past that this is so. The fact is A moon's glow is sufficient to see if anyone is on Waybourn Beach who could be making this whistle. If it's only you there and you hear it, then there is a puzzle to be explained away. Some people have tried and even attempted to track down the source of the whistling, assuming at the outset that it may be somebody in difficulty in the surf. But to date, no one has ever been found. Then there are the locals the ones who should know. A few of them have, in the past, described being right on top of the spot where the whistle is coming from and even they have still not been able to see anyone. But of course there have been a few exceptions in the past, the privileged few. Some of these have indeed reported that after the whistling had gone on for a while and then stopped, they had seen the vague outline of a man on the edge of the beach where the sea strokes the shingle Fully clothed in what appeared to be old-fashioned clothing, he appeared to have roamed along the foreshore while staring out to further reaches of the water, but then he just vanished before anyone could get to investigate closer what appeared to be an apparition. The moment this ghostly image disappeared, the whistling recommenced, but it has always been impossible to pinpoint its exact source. Local legend has it, that it is the ghost of John Smythe, who was a smuggler from long, long ago. It is said that one night when the moon was full, he and his fellow crewmates came ashore at Waybourn to replenish their provisions, something they had done frequently in the past. On this occasion, John Smythe, who was very, very friendly with the daughter of a local inn's landlord, told the rest of the men that he would meet them back at shore at a slightly later time than had previously been the case but despite this extension to his time away, John Smythe was to lose track of time which, understandably, would have been caused by the extent to which he and his young girl were, shall we say, improving their relationship further. However, unbeknown to Smythe, the customs men had been alerted to the presence of the smugglers and had made haste to Weyborn to try and catch them before they returned to their ship. At the same time, the smugglers who were there to pick up provisions learnt of this entrapment and together hurried back to the beach and their boat. When aboard, they waited just offshore for Smythe, who they had not been able to locate before their hasty departure. But time was slipping away, beyond the moment when Smythe should have returned, and still there was no sign of him. Understandably, they assumed that he had been captured and so began to row away from the shoreline and out to their ship. As for the customs men, they had not realised that their prey had already fled and hid themselves among the sand dunes and waited. Within a short while, John Smythe approached the rendezvous, hurrying down to where the rowing boat had been left, but all he could see were tracks leading out into the water's edge. In the dim twilight, he managed to pick out the rowing boat making its way out to the ship. Being somewhat of a cautious man for a smuggler, he began to whistle for his mate's attention, which in itself was rather strange since any method of signalling for help would attract attention. This problem was compounded by the fact that the tide had turned and the sea was on its way in and coming fast. On hearing Smythe's whistle, the custom men sprang from their hiding place and ran towards him. He, in turn, decided to take his chances in the sea rather than be captured. Bad choice. For unfortunately, as was normally the case in those days, Smythe did not know how to swim. Nevertheless, his decision to wade out deeper into the water was in the hope that his fellow smugglers would see him and return to rescue him. In doing this, he knew that the customs men would not follow because they too could not swim. They remained on the foreshore, witnesses to Smythe's whistling as he ventured further away from their grasp. John Smith waded out from a beach that dropped steeply. The sea quickly rose higher and higher. What happened next would probably never be known, but somehow he must have lost his footing or perhaps the current was so strong that it swept him off his feet. Whatever the reason, he disappeared below the waves and drowned. The last sight of John Smythe was his one remaining outstretched hand trailing his body below. A body that was never to be recovered. So the saying still goes. When the moon is full, John Smythe returns to the beach at Weybourne, desperately whistling for the attention of his fellow smugglers in the hope they will come back and rescue him. But to date, they never have. So there is something about whistling that makes us feel uncomfortable. It is a sound that is generally associated with joy and happiness. A sing-song sound that makes the hearer and the creator feel good. Until that sound happens in the middle of the night until that sound appears somewhere where it shouldn't be. Until that sound suddenly begins to forewarn danger, that something is near. Maybe it's a creature like El Silbon, a creature who carries the bones of his own father on his back and uses the whistle as a weapon, the whistle that can make you giddy with confusion or it can lull you into a stupor. The whistle that if you hear it means that death is close by. Or maybe if you hear the whistle in a lonely deserted place in the middle of the night. It's just somebody or something desperately trying to get your attention. But I guess that depends on where you are and what you believe. And also the risk you're willing to take. So for those of you who are not in the know, Weyborn is a little village on the north coast of Norfolk. So Norfolk is like the east of England and Weyborn is a little village on the coast. Um, And, you know, Venezuela to Weyborn in one episode, it's all going on. And I think El Silbon is kind of a a legend that is around Venezuela and Colombia. So it, it kind of, you know, hovers around there in various places and... Obviously, like with all of these legends, right, particularly, we'll start with El Silbon. There are loads of different versions of the El Silbon story. So depending on where you're from, you might have heard a different version of this story. In some cases, it's that his mother was killed by his father. So then he sought revenge on the father. In other cases, it's because his father caught him with a sex worker and wasn't very happy about it so the son killed him in lots of different stories I think the most popular ones are the two that I read out so you've got the the father assaulting his wife and the son killing the father and then you've got the really greedy demanding son who demands a dear heart randomly so those are like there's lots of different versions of the legend but bizarrely the whistling sound stays the same um, Which is unusual in these legends, because often in these legends, the monsters will make like a, a different sound and the sound will vary depending on the locality. But in this, it's generally an ascending scale is what the whistle is. So that part of the story remains really consistent. And I find it really interesting that so the, the story kind of really does center around El Silbon as this entity who roams the wilderness and is really dangerous and if he if you hear the whistle and it sounds far away it means he's right on top of you but it sort of centers on attacking drunks and womanizers which is a very there's a lot of morality going on there it's kind of the the reading between the lines being if you are wandering the Badlands drunk at night time, El Silbon is going to get you, which is designed to protect people and stop people from wandering the Badlands at nighttime. Secondly, if you're a womanizer, then El Silbon will get you. So if you are a man who is sleeping around with loads of women, and I think kind of in the context, womanizer also encompasses men who were abusive towards women then it was considered that el silbon would come and get you and obviously depending on what your crime was or your your moral crime was that would inform what your death would be and the the clothes that el silbon wears like the visual of him in his white tattered suit and his big wide-brimmed hat dragging a bag over his shoulder being like flanked by this dog it's just such a horrible vision, this this creature with really long limbs and whistling through the Badlands. Oh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Even if it is only like a legend of that particular area, it still gives me the creeps. And there were lots of stories, like the story from the writer who claims to have come into contact with El Silbon. The writer is called Damaso Delgado, but I couldn't find any translated versions of what he experienced. So I could only get the bare basics of the story, which is that he encountered El Silbon and the only reason he survived is because he had a dog with him. So there are people out there who claim to have genuinely experienced this creature. And lots of people underneath the original story of the Whistler from Reddit where the man um, was kind of hounded by this whistling for his whole life. Lots of people talked about El Silbon in the comments of that story, where they were saying, oh, you know, my granddad told me all about El Silbon and he saw him once many years ago. Or, you know, my uncle told me about El Silbon and his friend had an experience with him. So there are still, to this day, people talking about El Silbon and also talking about people who have experienced El Silbon and what was really interesting when I was researching for this I came across a video called I think it's the link is in the description but it was from a channel on YouTube called Monstrum I think and it's this woman who is um, an academic expert on folklore and she talks about the different folklore from different places all over the world and she did an episode on on El Silbon and in the episode she interviewed a director who created these beautiful El Silbon animations um, to tell the story of what happened with El Silbon and how the legend was born. And he was talking about how he interviewed loads of people about El Silbon, and, you know, especially young people in the area. And they were all kind of laughing about it and being like, oh yeah, it's just a story that our grandparents tell. But they have that same attitude of like, oh yeah, it's just a story that our grandparents and parents tell us. But I also wouldn't risk being out in the Badlands just in case. And lots of people to this day still report hearing the whistling and believing that the whistling is El Silbon and including young people. When I say young people, I mean like, you know, in their teens and 20s. Young people hearing the whistling in the cities, hearing the whistling when they're out in the countryside and believing that it is El Silbon who does that whistling and it's interesting that the story has evolved to sort of like a kind of a banshee type entity so if you hear el silbon in your house counting his bones if you hear him clattering around it means that somebody in your family is going to die like he's given you a warning to say that somebody in your your life in your family is going to be the next to die and in that interview with that particular director who ...did all that research about El Silbon? ...he made a really great point... ...where he said... ...each era throws up the monsters that they need... ...and I absolutely loved that idea... ...because it's so true when you think about it... ...each era, each place... ...each context, each culture... they, ...they create the monsters that they need... ...to either keep safe... ...or to teach people moral lessons... Or to tell kids to keep kids on their toes so kids don't kind of get complacent and then fall into dangerous positions. And another thing that was really interesting sort of contextually is that El Silbon wears the outfit that cattle ranchers would have worn in Venezuela and Colombia. And actually indigenous people were seeing more and more and more cattle ranchers that were coming in bringing millions of livestock onto the land. Which likely would have created huge divisions, issues and like a massive change to the environment. So I just think it's interesting that El Silbon himself wears the outfit of a cattle rancher. And when this director researched back, he believed that the story of El Silbon actually had a basis in a real crime that took place in 1850. And he believed that the severity of the crime led the people to use the crime and the criminal as a moral tale and a kind of a a story of warning so El Silbon was born so there is kind of some truth to the legend and I guess there's just something about whistling in general that people all over the world not just in Venezuela and Colombia find really frightening it's like I said you know it's supposed to be something that's joyous and people do it when they're happy or when they're content and that takes on a whole different meaning when you're on your own in the middle of nowhere and you suddenly hear a whistling and you're thinking oh shit is that something that's out to get me and the story of the smugglers really intrigued me for a couple of reasons firstly is that it's another story of a a whistling entity across the world and i know it's not the same as el silbon but it's nice to try and find similarities in stories no matter how big or small they are from all over the world but i'm sure there are stories like that about smugglers literally all over the coastline of England. When smugglers and pirates were a huge part of life, I'm sure there are stories that are incredibly similar everywhere. I mean, I've heard stories about smugglers from different parts of the English coastline that sound very similar to that. And I wanted to expand on something slightly in the story. So in the story, it said that John Smythe didn't know how to swim and he walked out into the sea and then he drowned. And it is a very interesting and bizarre little fact about people who were seafaring people, which is that most of the time, pirates, smugglers, people who, like even fishermen, you know, back in the day, they didn't know how to swim. And they made the decision not to learn how to swim. Because there was a belief that if you learned how to swim, if you knew how to swim, you were tempting fate. And a lot of uh, people who spend their lives at sea, They believed that if you went overboard and you drowned, so be it. That was just the will of the sea and that was the way it was. So most fishermen, pirates, smugglers made a very distinct choice not to learn how to swim. And thinking about the whistling, right, I wonder if there's something on that beach that when there's a certain wind or the tide is a certain way or the water level is at a certain height or whatever... That something natural makes the sound of whistling. So I don't know if you've ever seen the Mayan temple of, is it Kukulkan? I'm I'm probably not saying that right at all. But this particular Mayan temple, right, it's the maddest thing. Honestly, look it up if you've never seen it. But when you stand in front of that Mayan temple and you clap, the temple echoes back the sound of a native bird. And that sounds insane. But honestly, even if you just Google like uh, Mayan Temple clap bird. When you clap in front of it, the sound that echoes back mimics the sound of a native bird. How they managed to do that, I don't know. But that that is just what happened. So I wonder if there is something on that beach that naturally sounds like somebody whistling. And then this story of the smuggler getting stuck there, grew up around it, or maybe it is just a ghost of a smuggler whistling. Who knows? Do let me know if you have a whistling entity that is in your area, in your culture, or something that you have experienced. I would love to know about it because today we went from Venezuela all the way back to the UK. And while our stories were very different, one thing is the same, and that is that whistling is just fundamentally freaky. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you have a spooky story that you want to share, you can send it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail dot com. If you would like to know anything about the podcast, you can find it out on reallifeghoststoriespodcast dot com. If you are desperate for extra content, you can sign up to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Real Life Ghost Stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content and every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.